you can listen much faster than you can speak, and you can think even faster than that. But according to Oscar Trimboli, author of Deep Listening, the point isn't just how many words you can comprehend in a minute. On this episode of Hack the Process, Oscar discusses what we need to be paying attention to while we're listening to somebody speak, why deep listening matters, both in our business and personal lives, and how his audacious goal of bringing deep listening to a hundred million people has challenged him to speak more. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today I'm speaking with Oscar Trimboli, and he is the author of Deep Listening. Oscar, how are you doing today? G'day, I'm doing great. That's uh, Friday morning here in Sydney, and I'm looking forward to a weekend of running and ocean swimming. That's what my wife and I kind of do at this stage in our life. That's the way we kind of reconnect at the end of very busy weeks, David. How about you? What's a weekend got in store for you? Oh, that sounds absolutely lovely. I'm going to be doing a photo crawl here in San Francisco this weekend with a community of folks we put together who go to various places and take photographs and learn about photography from each other. Do you have a theme in mind? <laughs> we always have a secret theme and we don't announce it until the day of the event. Okay, well, I won't go there then. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have two brothers-in-law who have very religious debates, David, at the dinner table all the time, Canon versus Nikon. It's a fierce battle, a battle of the cameras. Where do you stand on that debate? I use Fuji myself. Yeah, there you go. But the best camera is always the camera that you have with you, which is often your your phone. So Yeah, well, that's what I always giggle and say, you know, they go, what do you think on this? Sometimes the debate is mirrorless and I'm like completely lost in the conversation, David. And uh, <laughs> I always say, you know, I don't even know how to change the settings on my iPhone. It's just what's in my pocket and it does the job most of the time. So you, it sounds like these conversations happen around you. You may not be participating, but it sounds like you're listening deeply. In those conversations, probably not, to be honest. I don't want to hold myself out as a puritanical listener. I always say the difference between me and anybody else is I know when I'm distracted faster than most people. You know, distraction is the thing that gets in the way of 86% of us listening, whether that's internal distraction, the story we're talking about in our head, or external distractions, the story that's coming to us from someone else, or it might be the waiter in the coffee shop. The lost listener is one of the four villains of listening, and I'm kind of a lost listener when it comes to hearing repetitive stories around the family dinner table and the Canon versus Nikon one is one I've heard a lot. And yeah, at work, I'm a shrewd listener. You know, I'm always thinking about how to solve the problem before they've actually described what it actually is, trying to anticipate what it might be as well. So a lot of the time when you're spending each day teaching organizations how to even notice that they're not listening, bringing them to a consciousness of the cost of not listening. You have to role model these things really, really well. But I think I was saying to somebody only a week ago, despite the fact I get distracted, I think 
unlike most people, I apologize for it and say to people, hey, I'm really sorry, I just got lost. Could you say that again? And most people smile when you do that and they nod at you knowingly because they've done it themselves. So I think you know, listening takes some degree of humility and a lot of patience and a lot of practice. I've had that experience too. And I do find that if you're honest with somebody and you let them know that your mind has wandered and that that's actually what happened, it happens to all of us, it does bring people back in. Yeah. And the simple maths and neuroscience that sit behind that, the 125-400 rule says we speak at about 125 words a minute, but we can listen at 400 words a minute. So the brain is programmed to be distracted and that's to help us with our peripheral hearing. We all know we have peripheral vision, but we also have peripheral hearing. We'll be able to hear while we're asleep for example, and we'll be able to hear other noises beyond the person that we're focusing on and speaking. And, and that's to help the human species to survive. It's one of the things that helped us to survive. We're noticing, is that rustle in the grass in the African savanna? Is that friend or foe? So knowing and being conscious that you are going to get distracted is, is the first step to becoming a little bit of a deeper listener. And the opposite is true for the speaker, by the way, David. A speaker can speak at 125 words a minute, yet they can think it up to 900 words a minute. And the bell curve kind of goes out to 1,500 words a minute, all the way back to about 600 words a minute. So in on average, most people are thinking 900 words. So they've got 900 words stuck in their head but they can only express 125. So the likelihood the first thing they say is what they mean, there's probably about a 10% chance what they said is actually what they mean. So for a lot of us as listeners, we think we have to understand what the speaker's saying. I think for a lot of us, if we just help the speaker to express what they mean, rather than what they said the first time, the conversation takes a completely different texture because then people draw in a deep breath and kind of go, actually you know what we should be discussing or you know what's really important right now or mm, now that I've had a bit more time to think about it we should be really talking about this have you ever had that happen to you yes yes I have and thinking back to what you said recently about the 125 versus 400 rule I haven't heard those specific numbers but I've certainly heard that we can think faster than we can speak and as a consultant myself I've sat down with people who've told me that one of the reasons that they keep their laptops open during meetings or they keep their phones out during meetings is because they are thinking so much faster than the person who's speaking and they get bored and they want to pay attention and the best way to keep themselves engaged is to have something to distract their brains so that they can listen at the slow rate that the person is talking. So let me bring you a bit more neuroscience into this conversation. I would love a little bit more around that particular point. <laughs> so a lot of the process of listening around complex topics, and typically in a consulting scenario, you're dealing with ambiguity, you're dealing with complexity, you're dealing with trade-offs, you're dealing with long-term, short-term, you're dealing with individual group, you're dealing with problem and solution. So you've got a number of simultaneous equations happening in the prefrontal cortex. It's literally at the, at the front part of, of your skull in the brain. But the reality is the prefrontal cortex is the least developed or the most modern part of the human brain. If you go right back behind your skull, where your neck meets at the back, that part of the brain is the amygdala. That's where the most developed part of the brain is, the most primitive part of the brain, the most historical part of the brain where fight and flight comes from as well. The characteristics of the prefrontal cortex, David, is it can only process a task 
at a time. So you can task switch very quickly at the prefrontal cortex. So in the example you mentioned, somebody's got their laptop open, somebody's got their phone open. The reality is they're not actually understanding the switching cost between tasks reduces the productivity of their thinking in that moment. Now, I'll share an anecdote. There's a thing called the World Memory Olympics. Can you believe there's such a thing? I'm not surprised to hear it, but I didn't know about it. It's an annual event and it's performed individually and also as teams. And Boris Conrad is a a German participant, four-time world memory champion, and the Olympic marathon event is the last event of any Olympics. And in the Memory Olympics, the last event is the card shuffle. 52 cards in a deck of cards shuffled in some kind of random order and the participants need to recite them. The people who do that in the shortest time with the highest accuracy win. Now, Boris has two things in his favor. He's he's German and he's a neuroscientist. So what I asked him was, what is going on in the brain when we task switch? And what's the consequential impact on our productivity? And he said very simply that multitasking on complex tasks is a myth. Multitasking itself is not a myth. The easiest way to know it's not a myth, if you drive a car, you're multitasking, but you're doing routine tasks in a very repetitive way. You're checking the mirrors, your feet are touching the pedals in a different way. You might be adjusting your position in in the seat, but they're routine tasks. They don't require any effort from the prefrontal cortex because they're now subconscious. Yet listening, a skill we've never been taught, I don't know about you, David, we didn't have listening teachers in our schools in Australia. I've spoken to people in Canada and Europe and Asia and South America. Maybe it's different in the United States. Well, I haven't studied listening directly, but I have studied improvisation, and that teaches you certain listening skills. Yes, and... Yes, and exactly. Is one of the techniques. I had the opportunity to interview Jem Brown, who's one of the big improv teachers on the East Coast of the United States and does a lot of work in corporate. But back to that moment, in that moment where your friends are distracted, where they're multitasking, what they're not doing is noticing your eye movement. What they're not noticing is your state change. What they're not noticing is how you're expressing the words relative to the problem. They're listening only at one level of listening, which is level two, listening to the content. But there's three other levels of listening they're missing out on completely. And the big thing they're missing out on is what's unsaid they're accepting that the 125-900 rule is false, meaning they just accept the first thing that comes out of your mouth, David, is what you mean. They're not taking the time to notice, when do you pause? Are you expressing words that are always about the future or the past? Are you expressing words that are always about problem or solution? Are you always expressing words that are long-term, short-term? There's a whole nuance and context behind that. So if those people, I'm not saying they're completely wrong. I'm just saying how they listen is not productive. And the reason it's not productive is they're listening for themselves. The difference between a distracted or recreational listener and a deep listener Deep listener is there to help the speaker make sense of what they mean, whereas most people enter a conversation thinking, how do I make sense of what's going on? So if I was chatting to those people with their laptops open, with their phones on, so my phone for this conversation is in flight mode. I always put it in flight mode. If I step into a building to visit a client, I actually switch it off. And when I get in the elevator, three deep breaths, 
And then when I get to reception, I ask for water because I want my brain to be the most productive it can be. So the neuroscience would say to those people, your listening productivity is really low, probably less than 20% if you're task switching during a dialogue. That makes sense. And certainly it's something that I've noticed and you've quantified it in a way that makes it a little clearer and easier to understand. You said one thing that really caught my attention there and I got a little distracted as you said it, because you said that deep listening was about being there to help the speaker as opposed to being there to help yourself. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, if we internalize that 125-900 rule, the likelihood that the very first thing the speaker says is what they mean, what they want to have the conversation about, there's about one in nine chance, 11%, 10%, something like that. I'm at an age in my life that if a doctor said to me, good news, Oscar, 11% chance of su surviving your surgery, I'd be asking for a second opinion. <laughs> Yet most of us don't ask for a second opinion in a conversation. Most of us don't realize that when people are speaking and when people are thinking, it's a bit like a washing machine, washing clothes. The thinking process means your mind is sudsy, it's dirty, it's agitating, it's moving around, but it's not until the rinse cycle happens that some clean thoughts come to the speaker. So the brain wires very differently when we think compared to when we speak. If you look at some of the footage from machines that measure brain and brain patterns, your brain lines up very differently when you speak compared to when you think. So if you want to be a productive listener, if you want to take the conversation beyond the words, if you really want to be impactful, your orientation should be, how do I help the speaker make sense of this, as opposed to merely, how do I make sense of this? For a lot of us, we can use some very simple questioning techniques to help us make sense of it. But again, we're only being superficial. We're accepting that the first thing they say is what they mean. The most important questions you should ask is, David, tell me more about that. David, how long have you been thinking about that? David, what else could we discuss about that? And in doing so, their state will change. Their spine will either become more wrecked, their shoulders will go further back, their head will tilt in a different way, their breathing pattern will alter from whatever state it was in to something either resembling a sigh or a deeper breath, and they'll collect their thoughts and they're concentrating. They're literally, their whole body is concentrating for their mind to go, what is it that matters in this conversation? Now, sometimes that rinse cycle that we mentioned only needs to happen once more because they've thought about this topic for a long time. Sometimes it might have to happen twice, three times before we get to a place where we can make progress. It sounds like a lot of the research that you've done into how deep listening affects conversations also applies on the other side, where it could affect the way that you present a topic as well. Very much so. And I guess one of the things that I've struggled with on my journey and this quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world, David, is I believe that if I listened intently to others, I could bring about this change. My reality was, my aha moment was that I had to learn how to spread this message, ironically, by speaking, by getting on podcasts and standing on stage and standing in front of video cameras to create training courses. And what was exciting about that is I knew what I had to say to land stories that mattered. Because when we speak, 
we want to make sure that we speak as elegantly to the, the logical part of the brain as we do the emotional part of the brain. We want to speak elegantly to the detail part of the brain. Uh, we want to speak elegantly to statistics versus models and metaphors. So the one thing I would say I've learned through this process is you might remember the washing machine metaphor I used earlier on. Your mind's agitated, it's sudsy. It's a way for me to land an abstract concept, 900 words per minute, into an existing concept in your mind, a washing machine. And metaphors are really useful if you ever have to explain abstract concepts to people without trying to draw a model. Because most people either know something about cooking or music or movies or books. They might know something about sporting analogies, for example. Or I might simply say, you know, for me, David, 100 million deep listeners is my moonshot. And there I've used a metaphor about something that's going to take decades. It's a big lofty goal and it's going to take time. So in your mind, you didn't have to quickly figure out moonshot. Well, what does that mean? It's already coded in your memory as something that's aspirational, ambitious, complex and going to take a lot of effort. So the one thing I would say for the speakers out there, if you want to land complex topics in a really succinct way, do it through the magic of metaphor because you're speaking to the part of the brain that already understands the concept. And as a result, it will make sense if you connect your abstract topic to that metaphor as an example. And that makes sense. And I think that applies in a lot of media that people might be presenting topics and not only speaking, but also in writing and other media as well. And one of the things I noticed about you is that you, you do present your ideas in a number of different media because you are a speaker and you also have publications. I'm curious about your decision. Now you're publishing a book about deep listening. Why did you go with a book? Well, it was interesting because even if you think about the form factor of the book, I had a big debate with my editor, Kelly. And Kelly was very prescriptive. My book should be between 250 to 300 pages. It should be organized into three sections. Each of the three sections should have between three and four chapters, and it should follow a particular framework. And I said, Kel, I have bookshelves full of dusty trophies that I never read. In fact, I might have flicked to a particular chapter and that's all I've done. I said, I want to create a book that will not only be read, but be used. So the book is designed within an inch of its life. The book is designed to fit into a, a waistcoat pocket if you wear a jacket as, as a male or into a handbag if you're a female. And I've had photos from people in wildly different locations all telling me that, that they're reading the book. And I've had photos taken on a river in Germany. I've had photos in hotel rooms. I've had photos in coffee shops. And the other thing people say about the book is they come back to it. It's really dense and they come back to it. So inside the book, for those who haven't had an opportunity to read it, there are deliberate blank pages. And we don't say this page is left intentionally blank. There are deliberate blank pages set out in the book to help the person reading the book collect their thoughts after a particular topic. Again, that's deliberate design. There are whimsical cartoon characters in the book to evoke metaphors and memories for them as well. So the book itself as a format is designed to be used and designed to transmit the idea. Yet in writing the book, 
a good friend of mine, Dermot, challenged me and said, hey, Oscar, writing's interesting, but if you're trying to teach the world how to listen, shouldn't you be on podcasts so they can listen to you speaking about listening? And I kind of was that face plant moment where you go, oh, that's so obvious. (laughs) So that was the moment where I had to hack my own process David, my superhero power is my cloak of invisibility. As a superhero, I was really good at making others look amazing to be their own superheroes. So you'd never know me. You'd never see me. If I was in a stage performance, I'd be that person in the black dressed up behind the scenes on the scene change and making sure the actors were set up for success. And yet in that moment, Dermot challenged me and said, you need to get on stage. And that was a struggle for me. It still is a struggle for me. It's quite unnatural for me to speak more than I listen. And yet in this quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world, I'm not going to do that by listening alone. I need to get out there and do that by speaking. And that was a hard process to hack. And David, it still is hard to hack. It's interesting is the challenge of inspiring that many people with a new idea. It's a very extroverted approach. It definitely involves putting yourself out there and bringing other people into the process. And it doesn't sound like something that somebody whose who's superpower is a cloak of invisibility would even come up with. And I'm curious how that how that came about. This quest for 100 million deep listeners started off as a quest, David, for a million deep listeners. And there was another person, Matt, and he said, you know, a million. He says, why don't you add a zero, come back next month and give me a real plan. I was like, (laughs) how dare you challenge my quest? It was a lofty ambition and I needed to travel to distant lands to reach a million people. And he said, yeah, whatever, come back with a zero added on. So I went away that month and I started to think about this idea about, is it possible? Could it be done? And of course, The more my subconscious started to think about it while I was running or swimming, the more the ideas popped into my head. Oh, well, maybe we get a deep listening assessment tool to help people do a questionnaire to understand how good they are as listeners. Maybe we create our own podcast and maybe we create a digital app that they can kind of record the way they speak to others in a privacy compliant way and it kind of coaches them back after the fact. So the next month I sit down with Matt and I go, yeah, yeah, I've got to figure it out. Yeah, I think I can see a way to do 10 million. And he said, go back and add a zero. And I went, Matt, (laughs) come on, are we going to play this game every month? And he, he said something really powerful. He said to me, if you can achieve what you're trying to achieve in your lifetime, it's not ambitious enough. Think about something that will take three generations to achieve. Then we can have the real conversation. And again, it was like a dagger to my heart. It's like, come on, I just moved from 1 million to 10 million. Give me a little credit here, please, sir. Can I have some credit? And he just challenged me to be the best version of myself. And it wasn't until about six, eight weeks ago that I sat down with Kevin Monroe out of Atlanta and he challenged me and he said, why not a billion And he goes, I'm not playing a game. And I said, oh, tell me more about that. And he said, look, McDonald's didn't sell all their burgers through one outlet, Oscar. I'm willing to help spread the word. How could you open up more listening outlets? 
let's make it a billion. So that's what I'm meditating on, asking my subconscious to help me now with, David, is how does this work for a billion? By the way, 100 million deep listeners in the world is only 2% of the Earth's population, so it's not as lofty as it sounds. Yeah, it's still lofty, but you, you get the point. It is it is quite lofty. And I'm I'm really intrigued now by these relationships that you have with Dermot and with Matt and with Kevin. Are these coaches, mentors, friends? What what is this? Dermot and Matt are both people who are professional speakers and trainers. Matt Church and Dermot Crowley both have done work all around the world. And Kevin Monroe out of Atlanta runs a community called the Higher Purpose Community. And Matt's one of the top 50 speakers by bookings on the planet. He trains a lot of professional speakers. He's kind of knows how to get the essence of your message out in a way that's potent. And Dermot is a productivity expert. He's just finished doing some work in Walmart head office in the US, uh, helping their executives learn how to be enjoying a more productive relationship with emails and schedules and things like that. And he's been a professional trainer for nearly 15 years, originally from Ireland. And Matt, I think, has been doing his stuff for, I want to say, the best part of a quarter of a century. So, you know, each of them have published many, many, many books, you know, not just ones or twos, you know, 15s, 20s and things like that. They sound like great resources. Are these people you, you hired to help you or are these people that you knew, people you knew professionally? Well, initially, I was referred to them. And by others was like, I went, okay, so if I've got to get out of this cloak of invisibility, I've got to learn how to speak. I'm just going to ask people, who do you know who's the best speaker, trainer? And, you know, I was lucky they both live in Australia. There are others. So I work with an amazing guy called Eric Johnson out of Midwest USA who helps me with my interview technique. So he helps me and trains me and debriefs me on these interviews, David, for example. So one of the things I learned very early on in life, I started life out in accounting and I was an audit clerk in an accounting practice. And I discovered in week six of a career where my dad had spent the best part of my high school year saying, get a job, be an accountant, you're never going to be out of work. And I did, and I went to study at university. And by week six, my manager has diagnosed me with dyscalculus, which is the ability to transpose numbers consistently, which kind of limits your accounting profession really quick. But in that failure of having a great relationship with numbers, I learned really quickly to partner with people who complemented my weaknesses. And I think that's a strength I've developed throughout my entire career. I'm uh, very happy to say, I don't know, can you help me? And with both Matt and Dermot, those relationships moved to paid relationships, meaning I would have attended both their training courses to understand how Dermot trains and how Matt trains on their various topic areas as well. Because another thing I'm learning to develop, in fact, today I've been typing up transcripts for teleprompters is, is to how to develop an online training course. I think I do a great job face-to-face -face and in the moment because I'm a really good listener. But how does that translate to a one-way medium where you're trying to interact with people you can't see face-to-face, -face, but it scales the idea. Absolutely. As somebody who's done some online courses myself, I can tell you not having that immediate feedback from students makes it very difficult sometimes to teach. David, what do you think I can learn from you as it relates to getting more engagement in online training? 
Well, it sounds to me like one of the things you might want to be willing to do is put something out there that is incomplete and start getting feedback from people, showing it to people and learning from them what they want to learn and how they want to learn from you, and then releasing iterative versions that improve on that so that your ability to listen carefully can be integrated into what you're doing and you can benefit from that and still provide something that supports the broader audience. Oh, well, I'm so excited that I've done that. I've done a training course for other facilitators who asked me, I had this guy call me from Switzerland saying, hey, Oscar, how do I use this in a leadership course? And I said, hey, Andres, why don't we just get on a call? And we did. And I said, do you mind us recording it? And that ended up becoming an artifact that we used for the training course. And he helped me prototype something. Um, the, the challenge I find with prototyping is you need to be really judicious in who you include in that early prototype group because it can skew the ID one way or the other. Do you have any guidance about that? That's going to be unique to the audience that you're trying to target. And it actually brings me back, if I may, to, to one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is the direction that you're targeting the work that you're doing. And that's going to feed into how I would reply to that question, because I believe you consult mostly in the business world. And it sounds to me like a lot of what you're, you have in this book could be much more generally applicable to a broader audience. The focus of my work is and researched in organizations, whether that's uh, commercial or public sector organizations. Yet the reality is the skill set you develop in that context becomes quite applicable immediately in your home life. I always kind of put, you know, those TV warnings or those movie trailer warnings, you know, don't try this at home and things like that. Three years ago, I was working with this software CEO in Australia. His name was Mick. And he rang me up on a Monday morning about 8.15 from his car. He said, you nearly cost me my marriage, Oscar. I said, what do you mean, Mick? He says, last Friday, my wife sat me down after she put the kids to bed. It's about 7.30, quarter to eight. And she, she gestured to me to come over to the dinner table. And she said, we need to talk. And he says, Oscar, you know, when your wife says to you, you need to talk. That's like your boss saying, we need to talk. So I sat down, I made sure I was at eye level, I looked her in the eye and she said to me, it's okay that you're having an affair, I just need you to tell me the truth about who it is. And he said, oh, tell me more. And she said, in the last 90 days, you've paid me more attention than you have in our whole marriage. So I know you're covering up, I know you're having an affair, I'm okay with that, just tell me the truth. So Mick put his hand on his wife's hand and said, it's not what you think. And she burst into tears and she said, I want you to tell me the truth. And he said, it's actually a man. And she cried even more. And he goes, no, 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 it's not what you think. I'm working with this guy called Oscar. He's teaching me how to listen better. And with that, she stopped crying. She burst out laughing and said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I didn't want to tell you because he told me not to practice it at home. And then she said, well, I've never felt sexier in our marriage than in the last 90 days. And I was confused why you were paying me so much attention. And I figured you were trying to cover up something else you were doing. And with that, he said he enjoyed an evening better than his honeymoon night. And we won't <laughs> go any further on that. But it's an example of where what you learn in the workplace can have some really interesting implications in the home life. 
as well. So I often say, please don't go and try this at home because your spouse or your children haven't been on the course. They won't understand what you're doing. It will be out of context. And that's what happened to Mick's wife over a period of 90 days. A, a lovely resolution to the story. But yeah, we're whole beings and how we listen in the workplace will carry over to how we listen in the home life. The thing I'm struggling to make sense of, David, is it takes a lot of dollars to research 1,410 people to develop apps and all of these, and corporates will pay for that. And my wish is that that will fund the way to scale the idea into schools, school curriculums, to help teachers, to role model great listening for parents and their grandparents in in their home place to be able to show the kids and the grandkids what great listening is, and more importantly, what, what it can do for not only relationships, but the kinds of experiences that they enjoy as well. I can hear how passionate you are about this, and I would encourage you strongly to to pick at one audience and focus in on it. And uh, it sounds like you started with the organizational behavior audience, which sounds like a great one to start with. I'm intrigued that you advised people right from the start not to try this at home. Yeah, it's just that the counterparties don't have a context for the change in the behavior. So when they go into the home place, they will typically do what Mick did and just be and all of a sudden, oh, this feels different. Doesn't make sense. There's dissonance for the counterparty. They could explain that they've been on a training course and they might notice different behavior, but the typical extension of that is people try and teach it and teach it quite poorly. Now, of course, one of the challenges was when you put out a book, uh, you have no control over the audience or who's going to read this or where they're going to try it. Yeah, I gave up control a long time ago. <laughs> I, I, I often jest with people, although the idea is in a book, it's not my book, it's a book. It's not my idea, it's an idea that's coming through me. So that took a while to detach myself from, you know, it's my idea to it's an idea that I can help push further forward and blow wind into the sails of that idea by speaking more. But for most of that time where I was struggling with a superhero cloak of invisibility, it was a very, if you could visualize my hands being wrapped around something, it was very much about control. And yet as the idea has spread to people like Kevin and Matt and Dermot and others around the world, the idea's got a life of its own now. And no doubt from you listening right now that this will mean something to you on you'll take it somewhere also. And I'm hoping it'll mean something to the other people who are listening as well. And one thing I'm sure that my listeners are going to be interested in is that state that you're in right now, where you have that trepidation about going out into the world and speaking, and yet you're putting yourself out there on podcasts. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you went through and what your process was for getting over that hurdle in your life. I'm a card-carrying member of the Procrastum Affection Club. (laughs) I know that club. And the book that you've seen, David, was rewritten three times and redesigned probably eight times. And the learning from that is all I did was slow down the idea by trying to make it into something I did. So 
I found that podcasts was a great way to maintain a cloak of invisibility. Although podcasters today are using platforms like YouTube and doing simultaneous broadcasts on like Facebook Live and LinkedIn and all these kinds of platforms as well. So my invisibility is slowly, slowly kind of eking away. So I think one of the processes I went through was speaking on stage is, is a challenge, but I'll do it. Speaking on a podcast is okay because people can't see me, although they can probably feel me, they can sense me, and they can get the passion in the voice that you're noticing. And it's something that I can do lots of, and I got a lot of practice. So, you know, a few of my family members were kind enough to do practice podcast interviews with me. And that was really useful because, yeah, they know I do stuff about listening, but they don't know the kinds of questions to ask, which made them the absolute perfect pretend hosts to figure this out. So after I recorded five of those interviews, which all happened over two weekends, I sent them to Eric Johnson over in the US, the podcast coach. And it's like, where do I take this? And he's like, you know, more stories, less statistics, less frameworks, shorten up how you say it, bring more of your stories into it, Oscar. People need to relate to you as much as they relate to the topic. And as I did another round of recordings and he sent and he encouraged and he said, enough with the practice with the relatives now, just send these emails out to podcast hosts and see what how the world interacts with your idea. So I think I'm up to about 65 now, David. And wow, something that I still struggle with. There are many questions I always have about fear and why would they want me on their podcast? And I hope I do a good job for them and their audience. And, you know, will I understand my accent, even though I speak English, it's Australian and accent. And I've, you know, so here's all the mental spaghetti that goes through my head. <laughs> and yet over time, the more I do, the more I practice, I always ask the podcast host, and I'll do this with you after this. If we were to do this interview again, what would you advise me to do differently? That would make a bigger impact for your audience. And in, I think that question is the really hack the process question. It's, it's a level four question in deep listening methodology. It's listening for what's unsaid. And that one has been the one that has hacked me faster, got me telling stories with metaphors much quicker. And being okay with telling stories about Matt and Dermot and all the things that haven't gone well, as well as the things that have gone well. That's fantastic. And it's also, you're, you're at this stage also with public speaking as well. And I'm curious if this has translated over into your public speaking work. Yeah. The big difference for me is somebody heard me on a podcast who was a voice coach. And Lisa said to me, she, she rang me up and she said, can I just explain something to you about the way you're projecting on your interviews and we had a long chat and from that she asked me a very simple question have I ever had any surgery or work done to my jaw and I went well actually yeah I had a very big problem in my teenage years around my upper jaw and had a lot of orthodontic work done for nearly five years and she said you're still your muscles are still stuck there can I help you get those muscles out because your breathing and your voice projection isn't connecting and she came and saw me at a couple of performances where she gave me some very specific feedback 
And as a result of that, she's also encouraged me to bring some of my stories to life on stage as well. And yeah, it's connected with the audience in a very different way. I've moved from educating people to engaging with people around the idea. So I've gone from people saying, oh, that that's nice, to people going, wow, I learned something that I'm going to apply. And, and that for me is the joy in the idea because in, in its application, the idea will be transmitted further. It's amazing how much we can read into a person's voice based on what we hear. Is is, is Lisa a voice coach yeah. or a massage therapist? Or yeah, Lisa's a Lisa Lachlan Bell is a voice coach, and she coaches a lot of the contestants on The Voice Australia. She was formerly an opera singer and travelled the world singing arias in Italian. And you no, know, she's a, a lady from Queensland, one of our our northern states, to where I live here. Yeah, I was just grateful that a somebody listened to what I said, and more importantly had the courage to kind of say, hey, I might be able to help you. That's wonderful. So you've, you've created that kind of engagement just by somebody listening to you. She heard me on a podcast interview. Wonderful. So I think people who are listening to this show might be interested in finding out more about you as well. Where should I direct them to find out more? The simplest place to start is listeningmyths.com. If you go to listeningmyths.com, you'll get the five myths of listening and more importantly, what to do about it. And that'll open up a gateway to all kinds of literature, whether that's video, audio, checklists, cheat sheets, the books, the deep listening playing cards, the jigsaw puzzles, the assessment tools, all those things are available for people through the starting point of listeningmyths.com. See, we didn't even get to playing cards and assessment tools. It sounds like there's so much more to find out about. Yeah, there definitely is. I kind of look back now over the last five years and go, wow, I was talking to somebody who provides some business support to me yesterday and we're doing the scripting for this online course that we're recording and we had to alphabetize all the resources in there because there ended up being about 20 different resources. There's the research that we publish as well. And Nell said to me, Oscar, can you just get it into alphabetical order? Because it's just the order doesn't make sense. And I just went, oh, yeah, okay. And then we started counting that off. And she said, I hope you take a moment to acknowledge what you've created over these last five years, because there's a big body of work there. I said, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. And she goes, well, hurry up and tell more people. We need to spread the message faster because our guiding principle in working with Nell and Michaela, who are our support team, and Johnny is always, does this get us to 100 million deep listeners sooner? That's the question we, well, that's the question they usually pose back to me when I come up with the next idea about uh, Siri or Alexa enabled listening app, for example. <laughs> <laughs> You have a lot of ideas. And when I give you that feedback after the show, which you're going to ask for, I will say one thing that I'm going to bring up is that because we didn't get to so many of the things that you actually work on, I would encourage you to bring them up sooner and to draw people's attention to how varied the resources you have, what, what varied resources you have available. Thank you. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been fascinating. And I'm going to go and look and see what's there. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes so people can go as well. Thanks for listening, David. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.